Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the reality of systematic racism is under a spotlight these days. Many people around the United States and the world are making an effort to come to terms with its legacy. On some level, most white people do not or cannot feel that reality. For people of color, the wounds and the trauma are deep and enduring. For white allies, standing up to dismantle racist systems takes developing empathy and doing work to understand and make change. In this episode, we hear from two men who share their experience of confronting the traumatic heritage of racism. Dr. Ben Danielson is a pediatrician, healthcare leader, and clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington. Late last year, Danielson resigned as medical director of the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic, a branch of Seattle Children's Hospital. He cited issues of institutional racism, which he addresses here. The subject of Danielson's talk is Generations of Trauma and Child Well-Being Today. Resma Menicum is a trauma therapist and the author of My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. He was interviewed by Victoria Helm, the executive director of the Northwest Children's Foundation. Danielson and Manicum spoke on February 4th as part of the 14th Northwest Children's Foundation Forum event, Racialized Trauma and Child Well-Being, Powerful Insights and Practical Tools for Healing. Victoria Helm introduced Dr. Benjamin Danielson. I'd like to introduce you now to someone who is very well known in our local community. Dr. Ben Danielson is an extraordinary pediatrician, child advocate, community asset, and a true gentleman. He's been a real partner to Northwest Children's Foundation over the last five years as we've explored, learned, and provided education about the intergenerational cycle of child abuse and neglect. Dr. Danielson experienced the foster care system as a young child and credits his amazing single mom with instilling in him an appreciation for the value of education and a passion for advocacy. He is clinical professor of pediatrics at University of Washington and has been affiliated with Harborview, Seattle Children's, and was medical director of the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic for many years. He chairs the Governor's Interagency Council on Health Disparities, co-chairs the Governor's Task Force on Creating an Office of Equity, chairs the Group Health Foundation Board, and is a board member on King County's Children and Youth Advisory Board. There are so many other boards that he serves on, so many different organizations, but I'm gonna gonna stop it right here. We often uh, joke and say that uh, Dr. Ben is in uh, a million places in 24 hours. Dr. Ben believes that health is more than healthcare and that any healthcare provider who strives to improve health must be active beyond the realm of their medical practice. As often noted, he pours his passion into improving the health and circumstances of low-income children and families, both inside and outside the clinic. Without further delay, 
Here's Dr. Danielson. Uh, I probably drive Victoria nuts sometimes because I'm still writing and preparing and thinking about things last minute. So I don't know if what I'm going to say is fully going to hit and land for you. I, I hope you'll lend me the grace of whatever uh, energy and spontaneity comes through here. And I also hope that um, you think about where these things fit for you and where they don't. I'm speaking from my own experiences today, and I'm focusing on systems. I know others are going to talk about many other components, and I hope they all weave together for you in important and valuable ways. But I'm thinking about this time. I think about this time we're in and about the impacts on our youth, on youth across generations. I'm thinking about the reckoning I hope for, what it takes to sustain some kind of momentum while also being kind to ourselves. I guess I'm feeling kind of a love grief. I make up words sometimes, love grief. I feel very loving and also, also angry, outraged by the ongoing insults to justice in our society. It's, it's hard to fully articulate, yet I have to say that both love and anger are actually deeply motivating me today. And I think it's okay. It's okay to be motivated by anger. It's kind of focusing in a way. I know it's okay to lead with love and it's embracing and unifying and elevating eminence. So I'm opening today with some questions I hope you'll ponder from whatever place of energy, fatigue, elevation, or whatever you're coming from. Besides being stuck with me, you get to hear from some really remarkable people today, and I'm so looking forward to listening myself. A main concept I hope you'll ponder is your readiness to go where these conversations lead and seek the deeper, rougher, less comforting spaces as much as you appreciate the more familiar spaces too. This is a building and growing conversation, rising up, rising up from conversations in previous years about ACEs and community experiences and racism, rising up from the new voices, adding wonderful wisdom to this dialogue today, allowing each of us to connect at any point show up differently at different points, challenge ourselves, never closing the door on the idea that a new thought could completely shake us off our foundation. So please hold some questions in your heads and hearts today because questions to me are the keys that unlock doors. Questions like, what are generations teaching us about trauma, healing, and hope? How are trauma and healing time traveling? What's our relationship to power? How do we embrace the layers below our usual conversations about racism and trauma and healing? There's a lot to reflect right now and to integrate into our other experiences. I think about the things other generations have tried at least to teach me. I've talked in the past about uh, this woman named Big Mama Pearl, a person who sort of helped raise me back when I lived in DC as a child. She had all kinds of wisdom to share, but often spoke in ways I wasn't yet ready to really understand. And I think she enjoyed perplexing me. Sometimes she was a simple scolder. She would say, boy, you got two ears and one mouth. Make sure you use them in the proportion that you got them. She also taught me the same twice as good speech that I now realize many black and brown young people learned. The twice as good speech advice from one black generation to another, to prepare twice as well, perform twice as well, know twice as much, speak twice as well. 
a black man, black woman, have to be twice as good in order to get as far as others. The twice as good speech also implied perhaps that a white person in this country could be half as good or less. Witness our previous two presidents. Big Mama Pearl told allegories, I guess. Sometimes she told me what they meant, sometimes she didn't. Once when I was skipping school and hanging out on the corner and feeling good about myself, she walked by and she talked about a rusty fence. She said, quote, a man puts a fresh coat of white paint on a rusty fence and feels good about it for one day. And then she shuffled away. Over time, I've reinterpreted the meaning of that one too many times, I think. The concrete thinker in me who's done yard work and knows that you shouldn't just paint over flaking rust without preparing the metal, scraping and all those other things. Otherwise the rust will bleed through and the flaky parts will just come off. Or maybe there's a statement about trying to pretty up something that's beyond its time. Or maybe, maybe the covering over of something rotten just hides it for a brief time, but the rot still persists. Is it about the quick fix? The appearance of renewal? I know she hated the way society called the color white good and black was associated with bad. So maybe the fence should have been painted black instead. Or maybe it means don't make the mistake of examining your work in the immediate moment and miss your errors. If you don't look again, if you fall into complacency, you could be led astray. Maybe it's just important not to rest on our laurels. We can take a moment to appreciate an effort, but shouldn't do that for too long. A man puts a fresh coat of white paint on a rusty fence, feels good about it, his work for one day. It's been on my mind more and more lately. This is the time to deepen our conversation about addressing the trauma of racism and oppression. Through the lens of generations and of systems, it's time. It's time to get to the complexities and how they ripple through our youth, through our bodies, through time. I hold the sincerest hope that this continues to be a time of reckoning in this country or re-reckoning or double down reckoning or something. A time of reckoning has to be informed by the right amount of reflection too. It should start with self and with the spaces directly around us. So I'll continue to press my own reckoning. I'll speak to you from the experiences in my immediate vicinity and I hope that's okay. I will press my own reckoning and I hope you are all doing something like that too. I think it's impossible. It's impossible to work in a system of any kind and not worry about contributing to the harm that comes from that system. These systems are designed to get the results we see. Racism, ableism, genderism, povertyism, ageism, xenoism. As we know, these are not accidental. They're not isolated nor easily separated from our institutions and systems. They're the predictable and observed outcomes. If I could amend an MLK statement, it would go something like this. Acts of hatred by those with ill intentions causes less harm than the complacency of those with good intentions and the institutions that protect both. We work to eliminate, say, a hateful president. We work to undo his harm, but then complacency can creep in while bigger threats are left untended. A fresh coat of paint What forms of bigger threats are we leaving untended right now? At this point, I think it's reported that five members of the Seattle Police Department heeded Trump's call and went to DC to storm the US Capitol in January. 
I know as a pediatrician that dying by police gunfire is the seventh leading cause of death for adolescents and young black, adult black males. This means that as a health provider, I talked about surviving police encounters during the early teenage checkups, just as I talked about seatbelts and diabetes prevention. It's hard to believe that we would tolerate this heartbreaking status quo if it were wealthy young white males who carried this risk. What are we as members of communities willing to do to demand a different kind of real public safety? Have you, have you become complacent about the issues of police violence against youth, especially black and brown? young men and women. We saw the brandishing of military style assault rifles all around us at protests all over the country in this past year, particularly from particular supporters. When will we be ready for real civil humanistic laws about restricting gun ownership in our society, the sources of so much trauma for our families and our youth? What more do we need to see? I believe that during this pandemic, we're in the midst of constructing the greatest gaps in education in the last 100 years. Gaps between a threshold of privilege and those in lower income ranks, yawning racism-based gaps, deepening disability-based gaps. To be honest, simply rushing to return to the status quo, the previous normal of the educational system with all its inherent bias, I'm not sure that seems like a plan that would narrow any of these gaps that we're creating today. What are we willing to do in this moment to usher in a model with greater educational justice before rushing back to our previous complacency? Our under-resourced public health system and privilege-based healthcare system is revealing all its brokenness under the weight of this pandemic. Elders who should be honored and cherished, disabled communities, black and brown communities, low-income communities, rural communities are continually at the greatest risk for the greatest harm. Meanwhile, donors who give more than $10,000 to some hospitals in our area are offered front of the line access to the coronavirus vaccines. Are we ready yet to have a real conversation about universal healthcare? What is this moment teaching us, yelling at us, pleading with us to learn? What are we willing to do? What are you willing to do? When we have deeper conversations about racism and intersectionality and so many different isms, the discussion gets hard, but I hope we're willing to go there. I hope we're willing to take note of the things happening around us, heed the lessons that, that aren't new. They're not new. They've traveled across time to ask us if this time we're ready to learn. I reflect on my departure from Seattle Children's Hospital in protest and the responses both from the hospital and from the community. I left the hospital in protest of things like the disregard for community voice and racist and sexist language and marginalization and erasure and attacks, the discrimination and risk that BIPOC families face, the silencing of other staff and other things I've talked about before in other forum. But I wanna to focus today on how systems and communities respond in situations like this, because that's what I want us to consider and apply to our own spaces. I'm certainly not the most objective person in this ordeal but it seems like the hospital's response has consistently been a study in how not to respond to issues of racism and oppression. I think the hospital is responding from a playbook from a previous generation, not a previous generation of people, but a previous generation of corporate culture. 
much of the early response to my complaints was basically a non-response, unwillingness to even discuss. So eventually gave way to statements that had words in them, but were still non-responses. And then there was at least small response. It was very short to some of my calls for change with words like, that will never happen. Later came in common refrains like, we were already planning to do that, or what about the good things we're doing? Some symbolic gestures were offered up. The underlying aim seemed to be more about managing a situation or, or crisis response rather than any real reckoning. The town hall was down and left some families unsatisfied because it was highly controlled, didn't really respond to family questions. Then the hospital planned an internal investigation, which brought swift condemnations. These are just lessons I hope you're listening to. An outside consulting law firm has since been brought in. The hospital has not done as much to attack my credibility yet, which would also be from the playbook of some past corporate cultures. But there's been a, a clumsy and confusing attempt to connect me to a lawsuit that stemmed from 1997, I think, 24 years, a few years before I joined the clinic which was in the paper last week. I don't know how much the hospital was involved in that, however. If there's been one hospital theme throughout this process, it has been power hoarding, wanting to control the message and the process, creating the illusion of engagement. I think this all comes from a different generation of corporate understanding about how they should respond to issues like this. And I see this happening again and again across this country in CBS in private corporations and other organizations and hospitals. And I trust that other organizations are looking at this and seeing the missteps that must be avoided. I saw an incredible article by Adana Protonensis and Jasmine Polito in the South Seattle Emerald, an online paper yesterday. And you should read it if you have a chance. There's an impressive tutorial. Uh, they sort of placed Seattle children's responses more like two generations away from what's needed today. The hospital hasn't really made it to the point of being one generation behind, where in their quote from Mia Mingus, the authors said there would have had to have been some acknowledging and apologizing and understanding for the impact of their behavior. In order to fully kept up, catch up, organizations like uh, this would need to, in the quote of Mingus, provide reparation and substantially change their behavior. The article goes on to describe the outdated organizational tendency of so many institutions to practice transactional accountability, which doesn't really heal wounds and doesn't center community. The article then describes what should be this generation's response, which is transformational justice, which is really well described by the writers. Transformational justice brings everyone into the process, is disruptive of toxic organizational practices at their roots and primarily centers community. The outdated hospital response and response from other organizations is described by them as dictating their own terms in a colonizer style model of accountability. They're trying to slap some paint on a rusty fence. And it makes me think that the organization is ill with rust, is traumatized, is not well, maybe in the way that Resma mentions in relation to the stormers of the US Capitol building. The hospital's illness might be partly, I don't know, in my view, maybe a lack of imagination because of a suppression of thought. Maybe there's a true inability to imagine themselves being so far off track. And I wonder if a lot of other institutions kind of feel the same way. They don't acknowledge or embrace other experiences. No room for others' stories. 
the institution tries to be a single story entity. Big Mama Pearl taught me to appreciate, appropriate, <laughs> appreciate stories as ways to convey one's truth. She taught me to speak also, but I don't always get that right. She taught me to combat being erased by, in her words, the man. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie taught of the importance, the necessity of space for more than a single story. She wrote, quote, I'm a storyteller, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. I grew up in a university campus in eastern Nigeria. I was an early reader, and what I read were British and American children's books. I was also an early writer, and when I began to write, at about the age of seven, all my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow, they ate apples, and they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. Now this, despite the fact that I lived in Nigeria, I'd never been outside Nigeria. We didn't have snow, we ate mangoes, and we never talked about the weather because there was no need to. What stories are our children learning today? Do they see themselves in those stories? I think there are many great people at organizations all around us. I think there are many wonderful great people at places like Seattle Children's. I don't know about aspects of the hospital's culture, but I know how deeply people want to see change, not just accountability, but genuine, active transformation. The real story about a transformative response in this day is the way communities and many types of them have risen up in this moment. Families, community organizers, political leaders, patients, staff, supporters, all demanding a better response, a generation now response teaching, sharing, learning, organizing, demanding, listening, seeing beyond the individuals, the specific issues, and looking transformatively towards bringing clinics like the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic under the ownership and voice and power of communities. The inspiration emanating from communities in these past weeks has been, has been powerful. It's hard to know where things could go, but the possibilities start to bloom in my mind. My own imagination might not be broad enough to consider all the possibilities, but maybe our imaginations together, our shared stories could come up with some beautiful disruptions. What if a community that is supposed to be served by a nonprofit hospital, a hospital that gets to avoid paying taxes in their nonprofit status, taxes that would go to that community. What if that community got together and created a community anti-racist bill of rights that a hospital leadership had to sign? An anti-racist bill of rights, not created and controlled by an institution, but created by the community. What if the hospital's nonprofit status hinged on adhering to that anti-racist bill of rights? What if the bill of rights had articles like uh, a right to quality, culturally relevant care, freedom from denigration, right to dignity, the right to dignity, the right to the appropriate hospital level of diversity, the right to anti-oppressive and anti-oppression accountability, freedom from inappropriate policing, freedom from gender bias. The community and its shared stories would come up with many better articles than I can in this moment. But the power shift, the power shift would be tangible. The accountability would be binding. The obligation, the obligation would be very clear. Are we ready for that kind of action, for those kinds of conversations? And when we have them, what else becomes possible? What keys do we unlock? 
This is the next layer of the conversation. Many in our, in our communities are well into this space, but other parts of society aren't. For instance, institutional cultures, are they really ready for the broader levels of diversity that they're promising? Are black and brown staff still expected to enter a club mentality environment, expected to code shift like I have been, wear a veneer, check their full identities at the door, be twice as good all the time? Is a dissenting voice considered to be a problem or an asset? Black and brown staff should not be expected to be some monolithic block in an organization, but I'm sure they'll be seen that way by organizational leadership. And, when it, and it will confuse leaders when BIPOC folks disagree. It'll tempt leaders to lift up or believe the black or brown staffer who seems the least disruptive. The stakes can be high in the dynamics, the day-to-day -day workplace for BIPOC folks in relation to each other in big organizations. We get set up, used to fight the battles for hierarchies. Our trauma, our experiences are used to benefit the status quo in subtle and unsubtle manners. We navigate traps and tokenism and impossible jobs and erasure every day. For Black folk, we become by necessity sophisticated in our understanding of how the systems work how it works against us, even as we try to change things. We know, we know the challenge of working from within systems with system approved, system-based strategies to try to change those systems. 25 years ago, Audre Lorde, black lesbian feminist said, quote, what does it mean when the tools of a racist patriarchy are used to examine the fruits of that same patriarchy? It means that only the most narrow perimeters of change are possible and allowable, end quote. Naming the tools and rules by which change occurs is a very effective way to seem to embrace change and yet prevent it at the same time, to make someone happy for a day. This is complex work, requires careful monitoring, and anyone interested in addressing institutional racism must be willing to call out the transgressions, shed daylight on the game, reject the fox's plan for the hen house. From a generation ago, Audre Lorde is speaking to us today. She's time traveling. And the most memorable line she says is, quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never allow us to bring about genuine change, end quote. Painting a rusty fence. BIPOC communities talk about this. Wise thinkers in this space, mostly much younger than me, talk about this on a deeper level than mere fatalism. They say this doesn't mean every strategy or tool used by the master are thereby nullified. That would kind of be white centering. Maybe some tools were not originally the master's tools, but were instead were appropriated by the master. Navigating and dismantling racism is not straightforward in our society, and it's not straightforward by design. I'm telling you, this stuff is complicated. If you haven't devoted time yet to dismantling it, at least. Organizational leaders are usually seen as good people, usually are, generally have good intentions, and they will do anything possible to hoard power and sustain the status quo with the least possible change. Leaders convince us that power is a limited resource and must be hoarded aggressively rather than what we know about power. What we know is that power is non-finite. It's potentially infinite, that it actually increases quantitatively when it's shared rather than hoarded. The concept of scarcity and the practice of oppression are directly connected. Oppression is much harder to perpetuate without the construct of scarcity. 
threatening your power, your position, your prospect for position. Those are very effective ways to convince you to fight to prevent meaningful change. It happens every day. I've seen it. I've seen it play out covertly and overtly. I've seen it drive people, including black people, to do outrageous things, to defend and protect purveyors of hate and the systems that keep them in place. I've seen it lead a black woman to propose a petition to retain a misogynistic and racist colleague. I've seen it lead black and brown people to attack black and brown people using the language of bias to eliminate and negate the other. I've seen wise black medical students with hard-earned, multi-generationally accrued, as well as personally lived learnings about anti-Blackness. I've seen some of those students' elders feel threatened or disrespected or harmed or something that they can explain better than me, and in response, make these students' professional futures feel imperiled. I've seen the concept of power, scarcity, and the setting leading to the severing of generational bonds, the appropriation of Blackness, the reverberating harm to Black and Brown folks in proximity, and ultimately reveal the thin fragility of the institutional measures that should have been protecting and protective in this painful time. I've seen this kind of pain, but I've also seen the beauty of generational healing. I've learned from my younger generation about an unwillingness to tolerate normal or status quo. The young black students recognize the complexity, subtlety of those deeper layers I'm talking about today. I've seen the strategic four-dimensional chess, as one person put it, these young black future physicians have employed in their approach to navigating an antagonistic setup. I've seen my younger teachers, these brilliant black students, and my own generation's teachers, these brilliant black colleagues, and the generation above me, these brilliant black elders, all hold me and each other in love. Not painlessly, but lovingly, accepting my lesser wisdom, patiently teaching me, promoting generational healing in every possible direction, even as these students have to travel their own path to success, even as they traverse a, a systemic culture incredibly addicted to power hoarding. Factions within our communities, our counties, black communities are locked in struggle to some degree as well. I've watched BIPOC against BIPOC become a painful feature even within the clinic that I used to work in. I've seen the start and stop of racism's reckoning in another nearby clinic with a similar mission. I've heard their leaders talk about bridging difference, but asking those most marginalized to do most of the bridging. All the while, our children are watching us, watching us make and not make choices in these taxing days, watching us come together and pull apart in these deepening layers of conversation, watching us waver between boldness and complacency, expecting us to work to create the world I've been telling them, you've been telling them, we've been telling them is possible, Expec expecting us to be the people that they see in us, expecting us to know when to lift up, when to lift them up, and when to get out of their way. I don't want you to figure all this out in a brief conversation today. I filled your head with things that are all over the place and I hope they just feed some form of contemplation. I do want you to become more and more open to the layers beneath the layers that might not have been part of your conversations in the past. I wanna be a different kind of honest, a different kind of transparent about what is happening around us. I want us all to be open to the sophisticated wisdom in many communities, I keep saying it's complicated. 
And I have to check myself right now. I keep saying it's complicated, but it's not that complicated. Knowing the right thing to do is not complicated. Doing the right thing feels hard or complicated, but the distinction is important. When faced with challenges, if we're honest, most of the time we know what the right thing to do is. The issue is usually a matter of will, not knowledge. I have to say I trust community. I trust the way communities come together. Communities that have been contemplating and passing forward their wisdom for generations. And it requires a multi-generational perspective to start to take on this complex kind of conversation. Lessons, lessons can, can time travel and convolute and defy time, just like Big Mama Pearl. Big Mama Pearl liked to be enigmatic. And I needed her so greatly in those times, two generations ago at least, that I've invited her to time travel with me to this space today, adding her simultaneous form of clarity and inscrutability to whatever present I experience. I know I overinterpret her lessons. I know that, especially when it comes to that damn fence. She was enigmatic on purpose, just to keep me thinking. And don't ask me to explain it, but I suspect Big Mama Pearl somehow summoned the beloved community that I have seen rise up in these past weeks to reject the attempts by systems to erase people. Because I know, I know now how this black woman, this wizened elder who verbally cursed my presence but always came to my rescue, I know how Big Mama Pearl was inoculating me for the future she knew I faced, how she managed to inoculate me twice, just like the current coronavirus vaccines. An initial dose when I welcomed her allegories, the stories into my existence, and then a booster, a lifelong booster, when she made me seek out and revere other storytellers of all identities. The multitude of stories are the medicines that heal. They heal me, they heal our children, they heal you again and again. Defying time, traveling backward, and forward across generations. No quick coat of paint here. They're healing, healing our children, healing us again and again. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the day and keep thinking about what you're hearing at the deepest levels. Thank you. Here, Victoria Helm, the foundation's executive director, introduces trauma therapist and author Resma Menikam. Hi, Resma. It's so good to finally meet you. Um, so tell us about the title of your book. Tell us mm. about your, gran your grandmother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the, let me tell you a little bit about how the book came about. So the book actually came about, is it actually was a, a really... Um, 30 year journey of, of the book even uh, coming about. I, um, when I was very young, and, and I talk about this story actually in the book, that when I was very young, I used to rub my grandmother's hands. And at one point, I was comparing her hands to my hands. And as I was comparing her hands, her hands, my grandmother was a small woman, but her hands were like, they, they had these thick, fat, digits and then thick 
digits in uh, thick padding in her palm and then thick padding on the on the back of her hand. And I would be rubbing her hands. My grandmother always complained of, of arthritis. And I found out later after she passed that she never had arthritis. So one of the things that happened was um, I'd ask my grandmother, why are your hands so fat? Why are they so thick? Why are they so fat like that? And my grandmother's a very funny person. But I noticed that when I asked her that question, that something changed because the way she looked, the way that she, 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 the, the tone quality in her voice, she said, oh boy, that's from picking cotton. And, and then she turned and looked at me again and she said, you ever seen a cotton plant? And I said, no. And she said, cotton plant got these birds. And she said, I started, my daddy was a sharecropper. So I started walking up and down them rows when I was four and we had to pick that cotton. And so those plants would rip our fingers up and rip our hands up. Um, and, and so until your hands started to develop some thickness and some calluses, they were going to bleed. So that's why my hands, so that's why your grandpa's hands is like that too. He was a sharecropper. His, his parents were sharecropper. And I, was, and I was sitting there and I go, okay, I totally... I totally dissociated from that story until I did two years in Afghanistan and came back and started dealing with my own trauma as a result of that piece. And then it got, and then all of the things came together with regard to racialized trauma, with regard to uh, a trauma that, that you experience in war, with regard to trauma that you experience um, in, in, in a society that is brutal. Right. And so um, the, the story of my grandmother's hands really is about the story of me, myself and my relationship with my grandmother. But it really is a story about also it is a story about the relationship between the black body, um, the white body, the indigenous body and uh, and and um, us beginning to deal with the charge of what has happened to people on this land, um, on this stolen land. So. Mm. Mm. So your book is about racism and trauma living in the body and not mm-hmm. not in the thinking brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say in your book, and this is 2017, mm-hmm. America is tearing itself apart. Mm-hmm. While we see anger and violence in the streets of our nation, mm-hmm. the real battlefield is inside our bodies. Mm-hmm. 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 Think about that. Think 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 about how salient some of the things that Fannie Lou Hamer said, or some of the things that Malcolm X said, or some of the things that Martin Luther King said. Think about when you read those quotes and how we always go, "Oh man, that could that could apply today, right?" And when I wrote the book in 2017, it wasn't that I had a crystal ball or anything like that. I could just see the patterning of white body supremacy and where we were leading to. You don't need a crystal ball if you understand the patterning. And so for me, um, the, 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 the idea of the reckoning and what you see uh, um, 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 on uh, see in the society was represented by what you saw at the Capitol. Right. What you saw at the Capitol, what you saw people doing was not a moment snapshot in time that moved across time. You saw people who who had um, difficulty with um, how to work with a historical trauma that they have never addressed. 
<laughs> right? And 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 it shows up as rage. It shows it shows up as 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 rage as let me say this, rage as standard, right? So 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 what you watch people do and say in those moments are um, looks feral. It has a feralness to it, right? That's the one thing about racialized trauma is that there is a there is a subtext of feralness. That's because the the, the society has a subtext of feralness, um, and so for me, the reckoning it wasn't hard to see where we were that we were going to eventually get to these places because those things that trauma hasn't been addressed. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, we were getting into the white supremacy body. Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. when you talked about this in your book, Mm -hmm. you're not talking just about extremists. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. You're talking not about white bodies, but about white supremacy body. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yes. So in my book, well, that's, there's two pieces to that. In my book, I talk about and I use the term white body supremacy, not just white supremacy, but white body supremacy. And the reason why I use that is twofold. The first reason why I use it is that many times when people say white supremacy, there's this genuflect to intellect, to intellect. There's this genuflect to, oh, yes, white supremacy, those bad white people. Right. And then the, the second reason why I say white body supremacy is that. The body, the body is the, and, and, and pigmentation is where uh, a lot of this stuff lands. We, this system, this structure has been created on using pigmentation as a shorthand for who is human and who is not. The race question in this country is actually a species question. The term race was used to determine speciesness, a race of dog, a race of cat, a race of bird, right? And so when we're talking about race as pigmentation, we are talking about a species question. And so the organizing rubric that I use to to begin to move into this discussion is really a definition by which I say we live in a structure by which the white body is the supreme standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically. If you don't understand that, everything else will confuse you about America and about supremacy, right? That the white body as pigmented has created a whole structure around the idea that it is the standard humanness and everything else is a deviance from that standard, right? And so that in and of itself, before you talk about redlining, before you talk about the ACES study, before you talk about any of that different type of stuff, that notion is traumatizing to anybody that isn't in a white body. There is, this is one of the reasons why I say that Um, We have to stop using the word or the phrase white privilege. We have to operationalize it and talk about it as white advantage. It is an advantage in a society that's constructed on the white body being the standard of humanness. It is an advantage off top to be born in a white body just at the beginning. That is traumatizing. That affects the nervous systems 
of mothers who are born, black mothers and indigenous mothers that are born into that, that, that rubric. It affects their children and their offspring. It affects the birth rates. It affects the birth rate, the birth weight. It affects whether or not a woman, um, a woman survives birthing children. And, and um, uh, 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 you know, America does not have a race problem. It has a racism problem, right? The, the, the race is not a pre-existing condition, racism is. And so what we have to begin to do is start from a place that is clear and, and, and interrogated so we can begin to do something about the, the, the trauma of race and, or, and racism and white body supremacy. Mm. A lot there. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so we know you brought up the ACEs study, and and we know that exposure to trauma is particularly toxic for children. Their brains and their little nervous systems are still developing, and that there's a a biochemical component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked in recent years about ACEs, and can you talk a little bit more about that? I think it. It connects to this whole notion of intergenerational yeah. trauma. Yeah, right. I'd, like, yeah. I'd love to, for you to hear a little so, bit more. So, so, so I think that the, one of the things that the ACEs study did, um, you know, a lot of people know that it started off as an obesity study. It didn't start off as, as what it, what it uh, became. Um, but one of the things that it did is that, is that it opened people's eyes to the effects, the social um uh, the social impacts and of 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 uh, on people and how that can begin to shape the trajectory of people's lifespan, right? And I think that was that's a beautiful thing that it did. Most of the people within the ACEs study, though, were white people, right? And so we started, and 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 so some of the limitations there's limitations by which you can extrapolate, you know, what you know, how this applies to certain population. I think there are some pieces that you you can begin to work with, but 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 I think you have to interrogate the how race may have impacted those pieces. So when I look at the ACEs study, one of the things that I um, that happens for me when I look at it is that the study actually starts, if you look at the pyramid, the pyramid starts once a child is born. Right. And the impact on what happens when they are born. And when I started to look at that, I started to think about, okay, what about my experience, my experience as 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 a black man, my experience of being born to a black woman? Right. Uh, My experience of what my children may be going through. How is that different? And one of the things that I started to begin to work with is this idea that. There are all of these things that happen before I'm born that could be affecting me right now that I have really no articulation, no language to explain. I only know it as notions, right? And so one of the things I began to think about is what I call hip or hip theory, right? And it is um, before you get to the actual being born, there are all of these things that must be considered before then. And so one of the things that I talk about is historical. In, and I'm talking about this in the idea, uh, around the idea of energy, historical, intergenerational, 
persistent institutional traumas and then our own personal traumas in gestation in uh, childhood and adolescence in adulthood in elderhood and in ancestralhood that there is this there is this these things that happen um, and all of those things get coupled and grouped together so when I watch brother George Floyd get murdered, for eight minutes and 47 seconds. When I watch that happen and I have a response to it, either a grief response or, or, or a rage response or whatever it is, it, the, the, the sensate of it or the weight of it, I experience as heavier than just watching that. There is a there is a there is a texture to it that is goes beyond just that. And that's when the historical stuff gets hooked in and then the intergenerational stuff gets hooked in. Now, imagine if I come from a people where the men and the women in that in that group of people were raped for 200 for over 200 years. And, and were raped in order to produce product that could then be raped. Imagine what the cortisol levels might be in those bloodstreams that gets passed down by what by, by, by the experience, but is decontextualized because the children in the in in in, in the womb or the egg and the egg and the um the egg and the sperm that came together that created this baby may have had some epigenetic effects of trying to protect itself from what it perceives as a threat before I even land on the planet. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing that I think the, when I look at the ACEs study, the ACEs study is beautiful for what it did, but I don't believe it goes far enough in dealing with the, 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 the level of brutality and how epigenetics can actually affect. So, so one of the things I've been saying is that trauma in a person, so trauma over time decontextualizes trauma. Trauma in a person decontextualized over time can look like personality. Mm -hmm. trauma, trauma over time decontextualized in a family can look like family traits. Trauma over time decontextualized in a people can look like culture. And what we have to begin to do is lean into the traumatizing effects of race and racism so we can begin to have an honest, not an honest discussion, but develop honest ways, communal and individual ways of addressing that level of trauma and not just wait till the bodies land on the planet. Mm -hmm. So you're really talking about that expanded definition of ACEs. And I think we're starting to hear different words, right? We're starting to hear adverse community experiences, right? Yeah. That includes yeah. systemic racism, yeah. inequality, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We just recently uh, heard someone use the term adverse systems mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. um, and that it's so complicated what you're talking about. You're talking about so many different kinds of trauma, mm -hmm. like bumping into each other. Right. Um, do we need to know exactly what happened? Or do we deal with what's in the body? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, it's not an either or. So, so for, for so for me, um, the body pieces is where the, for me is where we're probably 
going, the SOMA pieces is where we're probably going to get the most traction in terms of how we begin to work with this stuff, right? What, what, what we have a tendency to do is when we notice something, we immediately go to trying to develop a strategy for how to address it before we even interrogate it, right? Before we actually, uh, and when I mean interrogate it, I don't mean developing a study for it. When I say interrogation, I mean, how do you work with what shows up in the body with another human being and bring yourself to bear? It's, it's, it's a difference between research and me-search, right? Me-search is really about creating a container that, that, that respects the charge of intergenerational trauma, of historical trauma, and is thick enough to withstand and withhold the charge so transformation and emergence can occur. Most of us, when we find out what's going on, especially if, as it relates to children, right? When we, when we have some sense that something is wrong, we immediately move into doing instead of being and working with the being of it so things can emerge, right? Race is a 400, four, 500 year old um, philosophy that has, that, that has not been adequately dealt with um, because, because white bodies have been the standard of it. So white bodies don't necessarily have to work with race. White bodies can go through the whole society and not have to actually work with race. That is not the same thing for indigenous people. We have to understand the nuance. We have to, or, or in black people, we have to understand nuance. We have to understand discernment. And the problem that I think happens is that when we start to begin to try and look at intergenerational and historical trauma is that we genuflect to egghead stuff, right? We genuflect right to trying to develop a study or trying to develop something rather than trying to figure out how do we land in our bodies and work with, the, with, with, with race so more room can be created so we can actually get at the issue of race and white body supremacy. Um, so yes, we have to start with embodiment first, right? Um, and uh, 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 and I think that's what makes it scary for a lot of people is that many people who are experts in this field are very good at writing and telling people what to do, but less aren't as good as actually being with it themselves. Mm. Mm. How do black white blue bodies that you write about in your book how do they um how do they see each other how do they react to each other yeah so so um i'm writing a i'm, I'm in the middle right now of writing my next book a follow-up to my grandmother's hands called our grandchildren's souls and what i'm doing is i'm going back through my grandmother's hands and i'm looking at where the holes are at Right. Where the limitations were at when I wrote that. What I've learned is that um, as with any endeavor, sometimes you don't know where the holes are at until you actually engage. Right. And I couldn't I, I and, until I wrote my grandmother's hands, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to kind of kind of, you know, project out where the holes might be. And but but now that I've written it, I realize the holes. And one of the holes is equating a vocation with humanness ah. and blue bodies that's that was one of the holes right is that i called them blue bodies as opposed 
to saying, no, that's a vocation. They are blue shirts. They are blue uniforms. They are not blue bodies, right? Because blue bodies would suggest that they come from someplace else and they do not. Um, and, 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 and they are impacted by this, by this society and the structures and the strictures around race and the philosophy around race. So I don't think, I don't think like when, like the call right now for everybody is to unify, let's unify, let's come back together. You know, after, after what happened at the Capitol, let's come back together, let's unify. And the question I always have is unify with what? I don't want to unify with white supremacy and white supremacy. I don't want to, I, I will not extend my hand out to, uh, to, um, to uh, uh, people who believe that Jewish people should be murdered and exterminated. I don't, that's not something that I, that, 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 that I want to unify with. And so for me, uh, um, um, we have an opportunity now to actually begin to look at and see uh, the rabidness of white supremacy and white body supremacy and actually work with it on its face as mm. opposed to genuflecting to these kind of kumbaya moments as a way to, to override and take the heat out as opposed to using the heat to cook us into something else. Right. We're so used to stopping when something starts to quake and something is un uncomfortable. We want to stop it as opposed to allowing it to move so we can so something anew can actually come up with. Right. When when the thing at the Capitol happened and our children are watching what happened at the Capitol and you had Congress people come back. And have their have have their ties pressed, and have their suits pressed, have their hair, have their makeup on, and act as if nothing happened. But when you're watching that, and most people that were watching that had this sense that this feels inauthentic. This this the experience of this is wrong. Something about this wrong, but we can't really articulate what it is. And what it was is you watch people who were traumatized override and try and override that traumatization in order to perform. And that's what we were picking up as human species. Everybody who was watching that was picking up on it. Even when they used virtuous words and virtuous phrases like, we will not be kowtowed. We will not let these people win, right? And then what happens is when you do that is that you don't allow healing to take place. Yeah. I remember hearing also another phrase that came out during those days is this is not who we are. This is not who we are. That's exactly right. right. And, and, and I will tell you when, 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 when indigenous people hear that, <laughs> when black people hear that, when, 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 when uh, Latinx people hear that, we go, Oh, y'all still ain't learned nothing. You still are inauthentic. You even even when you see the carnage and the rabidness and the feralness of white body supremacy, and you genuflect to this is not who we are. What happens in the in in bodies of culture is that we go, yeah, and you still can't be trusted. You so still that, can't be trusted. So go ahead. Yeah, no, that leads leads completely to the next question I was thinking about, and you say. White body supremacy does great harm to white bodies, yep. white hearts, white psyches. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so think about this. Most of the white bodies that are listening to me and you talk right now are descended from people who were fleeing something. Think about what I'm saying. Most of the white bodies that are listening to me and you talk are descended from people who were fleeing something. Okay? That fleeing, that thing that they were fleeing or that fleeingness never got dealt with among white people. The, 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 the brutality and the carnage that elite white bodies heaped on poor white bodies for a thousand years during the Middle Ages never got dealt with. <laughs> and then that body came here and went all around the world in the, in, in the 1500s, 1600s, right? That body, right, that's the enlightenment stuff. They came out of that and came out of that, those quote unquote middle ages or some people call it dark ages and stuff like that came out of that. And that trauma of needing to flee never got dealt with, right? By the time elite white bodies offered those bodies the opportunity not to be uh, uh, um, a particular ethnicity, but to be white, poor whites grabbed at the opportunity because the ground had already been seeded with brutality and viciousness at the hands of elite white bodies, right? And so when they when the offer was made, do would you like to be white? White, poor white body said, you mean there's a chance in being white that I, that my children may not have to deal with the brutality of what I've been dealing with, with you people, with the land theft, of, of, of my land uh, in terms of the Irish people with 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 plagues with all of that different types so you mean that might not happen yeah we will like we would like to be white <laughs> we're willing to give up cultural pieces in order to be white we're willing to give up our language in order to be white we're willing to give up everything in order to be white and that is when the that that is when the ushering of white body supremacy not not white elites, not white landowners, though simply for being white, you are seen as human compared to my ancestors or indigenous ancestors, right? That, so, 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 so that, that, that structure is still alive and well. And those, and, and it's going to take all of us, but it's going to take white people beginning to work with that energy in community with each other first because because all of that trauma and all of that fleeing stuff and all of that brutality that has never got that's never gotten healed has found a very uh, a very nice bed to lie in mm -hmm. and that bed is to blow that energy through black and indigenous and and, and, and Latinx bodies. Yeah. Let's go to that that blowing through. Let's talk about let's talk a little bit more about trauma. Mm -hmm. Um I loved when you said trauma is the story of what our body tells itself about what's safe and what's a threat. And you Absolutely. go on to talk about yeah. that. This is kind of mind blowing to me, right? The first time I read it, I, trauma is not primarily an emotional response. Yes. And trauma always happens in the body. Yeah. yeah. In fact, it can get stuck in the body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in, 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the realization of that statement came to me, um, came to me in Afghanistan um, that, um, that when we, when we are overwhelmed, and we experience something that overwhelms us, right? Over time, if the overwhelm continues without a reprieve, you can get organized around that as a way to survive it. You just get organized around it. And over, if you do it long enough, that organization it can look like personality, right? And so, and so, and so, one of the things that happens when when you're working with trauma that makes it so vexing sometimes is that. People don't eat, people just know it in the body as notion or as vibe or as fleeting image or as urgings, like right? An inc- like an inkling. It's an inkling. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, and, 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 and so, so sometimes when I'm working with bodies, in order to get at that piece, one of the things that I'll ask people, like when they're when when they can't get at it and they, there's no words that can really articulate what it is, one of the things that I ask people to start off, and all bodies know this. This is not an intellectual question. This is an embodied question. And what I ask is, is it old or is it new? And the body knows. And the body knows. And when I ask people that, they'll do exactly what you just did. You said, mm, mm, right? There is a, there is, mm. there is a landing when that happens, right? And, and and we know, and sometimes people, when they, when they go, mm, they dissociate, they can't stay with it. But what we have to do is bring it back. And so when they go, mm, and they try and dissociate, you can bring them back gently a little bit and you can begin to say, what is, is it old or is it new? And if you can't tell what it is, what does your body want to do when that question is raised? Is raised? Is it a pushing? Is it a, is it a wanting to uh, run? Is it a wanting to warn and, 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 and warn, right? Ward you off and like what shows up for you? when that comes up and people know that and if you can help people work with that which will energy used to fuel um curiosity and play as opposed to looking for a tool to answer the question mm. looking for a tool to fix it mm. clean pain dirty pain i have mm. a feeling this connects it- Right to what yeah. you're talking about. It does. It does. So, 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 clean pain is uh, as adults. Many times we don't get to choose between pain and no pain. Mm-hmm. Right. None. Of, none of us get to. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But especially adults, you don't get to. Many times you don't get the choice to choose between clean and dirty. Right. You get to choose. I mean, you don't get the choice between. Um, pain and no pain. You get to choose if you, if you're going to if you're going to uh, uh, get a divorce. That is not a choice between pain and no pain. You're going to experience pain either way, and one is a, is a pain that has capacity, and one is a pain that is avoidance around it. Right, and many of us 
And this society is structured on um, dirty paint, especially as it relates to race, moving around it, dodging it, right? Clean pain is the pain that you get. Like the 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 the, the kind of analogy I always say is, is Victoria, have you ever have you ever been in a relationship with somebody, whether it's a romantic relationship or whether it's a a, a collegial relationship or whatever it is, but you know that the person that you're in this relationship with, you probably should not be in a relationship with them. <laughs> that they, that they, but you can't stop yourself. You, that, that, that you stay, you keep coming back, you keep coming back. And no matter how many times somebody says to you, you know, they're not good people. You really should stop. You, you shouldn't do this. You can't stop yourself. Right. But in you, you know, that the people that are saying that to you are right. That's dirty. Right. That's dirty. We know that that was probably best for us is to is to do something else. Clean pain is when you finally say, "That's enough. I no longer want this relationship." And your clean pain is when you're sitting in your room drinking your Merlot, right, and you're watching a a marathon of Bridgerton, and and you can't, and you can't and you can't stop emoting, right? That's painful, but it's cleaner, mm. right? That same thing applies to race. What you watched in at the Capitol is dirty pain revealing itself, right? That has always been there, right? What would have been clean if you would have watched the congressman and the Senate come back and acknowledge that we've been going about this the wrong way. And we're not going to act like what happened didn't happen. We're going to face it. Right. It's like owning it and then knowing it's going to cost you, but really own, own, owning, owning it. it. Right. Yeah. And then not just owning it individually. We're very good at the at individual stuff, but we have to develop efficacy and discernment and conditioning and tempering around developing a communal way of dealing with it, especially as it becomes to comes to race, because it, with regard to race, what happened to what happened to indigenous people with regard to land theft and genocide did not happen to individual in, individual indigenous people. It happened to uh, indiv uh, indigenous people as a collective. So we must develop collective and communal ways of healing and moving about and with that. Same thing with regard to my people and enslavement. We cannot develop only individual ways to deal with a communal horror. The same way it is with white folks who were fleeing something. We can, you can no longer just develop the, the individual strategy and ways of dealing with race and racism and white body supremacy. You must begin to develop communal ways of dealing with that uh, communal horror and viciousness. So, so heavy, and I want to <laughs> pursue it, but what I'd like to do is um, ask about some examples, but I think I'm going to hold this until we get the yeah, community involved, good. right? Because I think there's yeah. a lot of people who are going to want to talk about this. Yeah. Um, so let's do that. What I'd yeah. like to do right now, I'm looking at the time. I know you have to run mm -hmm. in a few minutes. Um, I'd love to turn to the healing parts of your book, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And Rosma, you're a you're a powerful visionary healer. Mm. Um, you're a therapist who works so hard. You're 
at, at reaching as many people as possible. We talked about how many of these that you do, right? Mm -hmm. These conversations that you're having in, in addition mm -hmm. to your workshops, et cetera, your therapy sessions. Um, and you're helping people with their healing process. Um, you make it really clear that healing doesn't happen in the head. It happens mm -hmm. in the body. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk about, about healing in the body? Yeah, yeah. I think people are really curious about that. So when I talk about healing in the body, I'm talking about um, resource and develop and resource cultivation, right? And tapping back into a an infinite resource that is always there, right? And I'm not talking about people. Well, you you must be talking about God. No, I'm talking about creation itself, right? And I'm talking about the idea that um, you know that joy and resource and resonance is available and always available. But many times we are unwilling, unable to access it, right? And many times we're trying to access it individually when in actuality, we have to access it through other people and with other people. And so for me, joy cultivation really is about taking small moments in time repeatedly. And it is not just a, a trick or an exercise or you flip a switch and, oh, I can I experience joy. Reason why some of us can't have the experience of joy is that we haven't cultivated it. So when we are exposed to it, the body doesn't know what to do with it because we haven't conditioned and tempered the body to be able to recognize and discern joy from constriction. Right. And so we have to slow it down so we can begin to notice in the body where the resource is, where the joy is. And even if we can only hold it for half a second, that's enough, especially if we can do that half a second, 10, 12, 20 times a day. Mm -hmm. Right. And what happens in that is that when you do that joy cultivation, when you do that cultivation, is there a, a quaking begins to occur. Right. And some, and what we've been taught to do is that when the quaking occurs, is we we've been taught to yoga the hell out of it, you know, calm it down, you know, Christian the hell out of it, calm it down, you know, uh, Buddhist the hell out of it, calm it down, right, uh, uh, right, use Judaism to to calm it down, right. And what we what I've been telling people is that that quaking creates room. Right. And your job is to create a container to hold the quaking, not stop it. So you so so the things that you need in order to communally transform and emerge can can begin to emerge in the in the quaking. It doesn't happen through absence of quaking. It happens by holding the quaking and then being curious around what emerges. And so for me. When people talk about unity and joy, really, it they are just words because there has been no cultivation, no, no mm -hmm. cultivation of it. We have to cultivate it so the body actually knows what it is when it shows up. Otherwise, the body will override it or see it as a threat, right? We, we always want good things to happen, but many times our bodies cannot hold the good things, right? Because we haven't, we haven't taught the body that it is not a threat. Good things are, make us vulnerable. Vulnerability, if you've been conditioned that vulnerability is a threat, even when, you, even when the good stuff happens, you can't take it in. 
So to me, joy, black joy, indigenous joy is really in in in, in cultivation. Really is about slowing down, pausing for beats, not not trying to take on too much at one time, and not knowing where it's going to go. Right, like you, you have to lean into right. that uncertainty. It sounds there is sounds no guarantee. Me. If what if if if, if white if white folks, if white bodies start to begin to actually do the embodied work around race, there is no roadmap. There's, there, there, there is, there, there, and do it with each other. There yeah. is no, there is no, uh, like I'm not a magical Negro, right? I don't come in and sprinkle pixie dust on white people and then they magically are, are able to <laughs> deal with white body supremacy, <laughs> right? I'm not a guru. I'm not any of that different, that stuff, right? Um, 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 I, I say that white folks are going to have, it's going to take at least nine generations before white people know what the hell is going on with race. It's going to take at least nine generations of developing a culture that can hold it. And so you ne- there is no guarantee. This is a lifelong is 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 about developing a, a living embodied anti-racist culture and practices. That's lifelong. That's not that's not a strategy. That's not uh that's not in your um in your five-year strategic plan. That is not it's, it it is living in an embodied way through a, a, anti-racism. Yeah, a lot to figure out. Yeah, I've got I've got one last question for you. I know mm-hmm. our time is. I'm watching the time. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can pass trauma down from one generation to another, can't we pass down resilience, resiliency? Yeah, we we pass. But you see, pass, resiliency and joy. Um, is always there anyway. It doesn't, it's not something we have to reclaim. It is accessible. It's always there, right? And we do. When my grandmother, when I'm sitting with my grandmother and we're going through a whole lot of stuff in our family and I and I lay on my grandmother's lap and she starts rocking and humming, right? And that vagal nerve, her, her vagal nerve is vibrating my vagal nerve, right? That's resource. When when my people were in the fields and they were doing call and response and humping humming, that that is resource. That is that that is resource. But the reason why I'm even able he, to be here and talk to you is because of resource and resilience, right? It is not it is not just trauma that is passed down. Resource and resilience is passed down, but we have to cultivate an understanding of it. Right. And then it can echo out and, and reverberate out like a like a pebble in a pond. Right. But if we don't do that, we don't even recognize the ripple. We don't recognize our bodies can't recognize the ripple or or the constriction or the the, the thwarting. We can't recognize it. Hmm. Resma, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Dr. Benjamin Danielson and therapist Resma Menicum spoke on February 4th as part of the 14th Northwest Children's Foundation Forum event, Racialized Trauma and Child Well-Being. To find the full event and other great Seattle-area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. 
Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.